coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 24th of July, 2022. Growing in Christ. We talked a little bit last week about salvation. And then in the Gospel of John, the most familiar set of terms that are used to describe how a person is rightly related to God is to believe in Jesus Christ, to believe in his son. So after that message, I was thinking, where in the world do I go from here? Well, that was on birthing, so we have to go to, we have to go to growing. So, Amar gave me a passage this week, and he said, uh, you could preach on this. Thank you, Amar. Have it, have it ready to go, and you can preach on it. But in Philippians chapter 2, and we're studying in Philippians, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He said, Pastor, you ought to preach on what it means to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is for people who don't think I'm paying attention. I said, man, my big mouth. Uh-huh. So I'm not going to do that this morning. <laughs> Actually, as I was thinking about that, I was trying to think of all the aspects of our walk with Christ that we could cover. And uh, what things that help us to grow. Uh, What kind of life should we live? What does it look like? And uh, as I was working through that, I came across this passage, and I'm going to take you there this morning. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, let me give you a little background that leads up to this passage so that what is said here makes a little more sense. Apostle Paul had visited the church of Corinth. In fact, he had helped establish and form the church of Corinth as he ministered in Corinth, and the church was formed. He had also spent about a year and a half ministering there, so he had spent some time in Corinth, And because this is 2 Corinthians, we know that there was at least 1 Corinthians written to the church. And if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, there's a little rephrase that's repeated over and over in there. It says, now concerning this, and then he goes and talks about a topic. And then he says, now concerning this, and he talks about another topic. And in 1 Corinthians then, Paul is addressing this church 
of Corinth. Now, if you wanted to call somebody by a mad, bad name in the Roman world, you say, he's a Corinthian. Because they had a bad reputation. It was, it was a town that uh, was a military town and things were wide open and rugged and, and uh, rough. And the church was born out of that background. And of course, when a person gets saved, they leave all their troubles behind, right? And they become... No. <laughs> when a person gets saved, now they got a lot of issues to deal with. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses several of the issues that cropped up within the church. And he addressed those things with the idea of doing some mid-course directions. He's still writing to believers, but there were issues in their life that he wanted to deal with. And under God's Holy Spirit direction, he addressed those. Now some time has passed, and he's writing another letter. And uh, in 2 Corinthians... Paul is more defending his position. In most of the book, he's spending some time talking about the fact that God had called him to ministry. Why? He says, because when the Corinthians received the first letter from Paul, there was some within the congregation who said something along this line. Who is he that he thinks he could say that to us? Who is he who's writing to us from afar and telling us how to live? And just what kind of authority does he have anyway? So in 2 Corinthians, a lot of 2 Corinthians, he is writing about the fact that God had put the call on his life to minister. And even though he had suffered much in doing the work of ministry, that wasn't what it was was the fact that this message that he was giving came from God and they needed to hear it. So in the, in the opening chapters of this book, you can read that kind of stuff and see what he has to say to the church. But by the time you get to verse chapter 7, he uh, is talking about the fact that they are still a place, have a place in his heart. And he's still speaking about the joy that they are believers. And that he has a great affection towards them. And the reason that I wanted to focus on this section this morning, dealing with Paul's conversation here with the Corinth. Corinthians is because what he does here is not so much tell them how to grow, but he encapsulates sort of a heart and a mindset in a few words to describe what a Christian looks like as they're going through this life. Now realize he's writing to Corinth and he's writing to these Corinthians 
And they didn't always manifest every aspect of this, but he's delighted that they have come to the place of responding to what he has to say. And he says, I see this in you. Sometimes it's real good for someone outside of your life to give you perspective because you either see yourself in too good a light <laughs> or in too poor a light. Very rarely do we hit ourselves right. But somebody from the outside can say, I see this in you. Did you see this in you? No, I didn't see that in you. Sometimes it's for correction, you needed that. But sometimes we get down on ourselves and, and someone steps in and says, man, I would appreciate whenever I see you, you always have a good word to share. I really appreciate that. And Paul then writes to the church at Corinth after working them over in the first epistle and then the second epistle, defending his authority, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, even when we came, in verse 5, even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we are afflicted at every turn, fighting within, fighting without, and fears within. I don't know about you, but I draw comfort from the fact that Apostle Paul said, I struggle. Because <laughs> otherwise, we have Apostle Paul over here and all the rest of us over here. But Apostle Paul said, I struggle too. We have, we have fighting without and fears within. It says, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforts us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Paul said, one of the things that boosted my spirits is the fact that Titus came from you, and, and told of what was going on in your hearts and your life there in the church. And he talked about your zeal and talked about your longing for us and your mourning over issues in your lives and dealing with, with uh, the things that come as they come into your life. And he says, and that brought me to a place of rejoicing. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul says, man, it really hurt me to write this letter to you. Really hurt me to have to say the things that I said to you. And I'm sorry for the pain that it inflicted. But it was a necessary pain. It was a necessary thing that I wrote to you. 
because I wanted you to move from where you were to where I knew that you could be. And so, in that sense, even though it hurt me to write it and it hurt you to read it, I'm glad that it had its intended purpose in moving you from where you were to where you needed to be. Verse 10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have, you have proved yourself innocent in the manner. Paul then, as he writes to the church, he goes, oh, wow, what happened? Look what happened in your life. And so in this respect, he, he then talks about what has happened as far as their walk with the Lord. And to that end, I want to speak to you this morning. For as he talks about this, he then spells out for us a picture of the heart attitude of the Corinthian church. And I think what he does is he paints a great picture for the heart attitude of believers. I put here that it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 11. And we want to look at some of these terms here. And he says, in verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. And I just want to take a moment or two and talk about some of these terms so we can get a picture of the heart attitude that Paul was delighted to see in the church there that they manifest, and he said, I'm delighted that this has been the result. This is what I wanted. And I want you to note that he's not really talking about, as I said before, you need to do these things. Or you need to uh, have this as, as some stuff that, that uh, is required for you to be a good Christian. What he's talking about is, if we talked last week about believing in Jesus, and Amar said, well, why don't you preach about this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does it mean to work out the truth that Jesus Christ is now in the life, and what kind of things are going to be manifest in the life? If a person says, I want to follow Christ, what kind of things will show forth as a person 
pursues seeing that worked out in his life. First phrase that I want to work with is what eagerness to clear yourself, Paul writes to the church there. And it's the idea of a diligent defense. For the word that's used here about um, to clear yourself is the word where we get apologetics from. That you have a good reason for why you live the way that you live. That you have, you have looked at the person of Jesus Christ. You've looked at yourself, seen your need. You've, you put your faith and trust in him. And now, as you think about it, you say, this is something that makes sense. Is the same word that is used in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 16. Let me read those verses to you. As Peter is writing, and he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect and having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Our best defense is a good life. A life that recognizes Jesus Christ as Lord. And he says, if anyone asks you, give the reason for the hope that is in you. Why do, you, why do you hope this way? Why do you live this way? Why do you follow the Lord? He says, I knew who I was, and I know what he did. We might be eager to give a diligent defense or a reason for our beliefs and for our faith. Do you have to be a big scholar to do that? No, you just have to, to know what God has said in his word concerning your salvation and the fact that you say, I believe that, and that's why I live the way I live. You don't have to be an expert on, on uh, where the scriptures came from and how they were put into the canon and all that. Not a bad thing to know, but that's not what they're after want to know, why do you live the way that you live? And if you're living following Christ, they're going to ask that question. And you'll be able to say, it's because Jesus has come into my heart and life and changed me. And I have to live this way. I want to follow him. I want to pursue him. That's why I live this way. 
Paul says, I see that it's produced in you this kind of diligent defense. That you have, as a church, I came and ministered to you. You came and you put your faith in Christ. I discipled you there. I was in your presence. I've written some letters. The first one wasn't a happy one. The second one, defending my, my authority. But I see what it's doing in you. It's producing, this gospel is producing a change in your heart and lives. And I see it. The second one, he says, not only what earnest eagerness to clear yourselves, but what indignation. That means the idea of being aroused or indignant or angry. You go, oh no, that doesn't sound so good. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 21, 15, as Jesus was ministering, and there, the chief priests and the scribes are looking at what Jesus Christ is doing, and they see in verse 15, and when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, they praised him. No, that isn't what scripture says. When they saw the wonderful things that he did, and what was going on in this passage? Well, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. He says, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, to the son of David. We know the word Hosanna means save us, son of David. And the chief priests and, and the scribes, their eyes are getting bigger and they go, you can't say that about Jesus. That's exactly what the children were saying. He says, and they were angry. You say, well, okay, how does that fit this passage, though? What does a believer get angry with? Not the world. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. What you get angry with is when the sin of the world impacts yourself. This is not a time for a believer to point at another believer and go, well, you need to straighten up your life. This is a matter when a person looks at their own life and they see how their sin has made them settle for less than a walk with God in his holiness and in his glory. Oh, man, why did I make that choice? Why did I do that? Oh, I'm upset. And he says, I see that in you. I see that in you. You come to realize that your sin has not served you well. And you're upset by that. That's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. He goes on. And he says, what eagerness to clear yourself. What diligent defense then. What indignation. What anger that you have displayed. 
And now, what fear? What fear? It's a word in the Greek that that uh, we know all too well in our English language, language, phobia. Phobia. It means to fear, right? But when it's used in the context of a walk with God, what it's referring to then is to revere God, to hold him in high regard. When we treat God as common and of little importance, it's not going to be healthy for our walk. But when we hold him in high regard, it's going to be very good for our, our walk. And that's what he talks about. And earlier in this passage, if you look at verse 1, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit and bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That we would walk a holy life because we know that we are living in the presence of the living. Holy, holy, holy. He's not done yet. He says, I see this, and not only that, what zeal that you have. What longing, excuse me, I passed right over. What longing. And here's that idea of great, great desire. Peter paints an interesting picture for us. If you've ever been around a little one, you you know that there are some things that make babies cry. Sometimes neglect. Sometimes the dirty diaper. But one of the ones that we know is when they get hungry. When they get hungry, they cry, where's my food? And Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He says, I see in you, church, that you have a hunger and a longing for the truth of God's word because you have tasted and seen that God is good and you want more. (laughs) One little bit isn't going to do it. you got to have it over and over. That's how we describe you. So what kind of eagerness do you have? You're diligent to have a, a defense of the faith. And you're angry too. You're angry about your sin. That's a good thing to be angry about. 
And it's different than your fear because your fear has driven you to revere God in all of his glory and to have him in a central part of your life. And what longing do you have? You have a great longing. Having tasted and seeing that the Lord is good, you want more. You want more. That's how we describe it. And then he says, what zeal. What zeal do you have? And this is the same word that Paul uses to describe himself when he was a persecutor of the church in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. What does he mean by that? How many, how many Hebrews were there in the land when Paul was living? And of them, how many went after the church like Paul did. Paul says, we can't let this upstart thing of Christians uh, mess with our Hebrew faith. We are going to, it's not just enough to be upset about them, we are going to go after them. And Paul, as we see in the book of Acts, took up as a personal challenge to go after the church. He even got letters of recommendation and condom, con, commendation from the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem to go and track them down and haul them in and put them to death. Look, we got to quash this thing. We've got to quash it now. And Paul was leader of the pack. And he describes that as passion with zeal. This was my passion. This is what... I do. And now Paul uses this to describe the church in Corinth. He says, I really hated writing you this letter because I knew that it would offend you and that you would be grieved by it. But I did it for a purpose that it might have a desired effect to correct you and bring about changes in your life that I knew would be to your good and benefit. And guess what it did? And I'm so thankful. I, I don't regret writing the letter because I was looking beyond the letter to see what it would produce in you. And one of the things that it did was it put a fire in you. It rekindled your passion. Paul then praises them that they weren't going to be lackadaisical about this. If they're going to live for Christ, they were going to live for Christ. Years ago, I, I read a book. It was called Radical Christian Discipleship. And I go, huh, that's interesting. So he said, what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who follows 
another. He says, well, what is discipleship then? It is the process by which a person is mentored by another and follows them and mimics them and copies them. He says, what is Christian discipleship? Well, it's when you have as your mentor Jesus Christ and you follow him and you mimic your life after him. And he says, so then, what is radical Christian discipleship? And he said, going from talking about it to doing it. And that's what we're talking about when he talks about zeal. He says, let's not just talk about this. Let's do it. And then he adds this last one. What punishment? And you go, what? How does this fit? Go around bopping people on the head? No. It is a heart thing that we're talking about here. In 2 Peter, Paul writes in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or governor sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. What does it mean? This word talks about a desire to see right and justice prevail. And he says, I see it in you. I see it birthed in you. I see it happening in you. These things I wrote to you may have made you wince when I wrote them, but they had their desired effect. And you're back on track and you're doing those things what I knew you should be doing. This is quite a contrast to the opening of 1 Corinthians. Remember what was going on in 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians records an account of a man who was having intimate relationships with his stepmom. And you go, ooh. And he says, you know, that doesn't even happen in Corinth. I mean, here we have Sin City, and they're taking notes from you because that's what's going on in the church. And what is your response? Your response is, Live and love, live. And Paul comes in, 1 Corinthians, and he goes, no, I'm, I'm telling you from a distance. You, if this man does not repent, you need to kick him out of the church. Whoa. He says, don't let this be said that this happens among believers. It ought not to be. By the time we get to 2 Corinthians, the man who had been kicked out turned over for Satan, Satan to work, work him over now had repented and comes back to the church and they go, I don't know, we kicked you out. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians this, now that he's repented and let him back in, he's a brother. 
The reason we kicked him out was because he was unrepentant. He's repentant. Bring him back in. So when he comes here and he says, I see that what's happened in you is what I had to write about in 1 Corinthians, that you do what is right and do what is just. You've picked up the torch and now you're carrying that same torch. You want to do what's right. And that's what he's talking about here. Desire to see what's right and to see justice prevail. So we have this in this passage. I believe a great summary of salvation being lived out in the Christian life. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, no looking back. Whereas God worldly relief grief produces death. He says, you know that godly grief when I was provoking you to do what is right, produces repentance that leads to deliverance. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Look what it's done. Look what it's done. It's gotten you to the place where I knew you could live and what you should be doing. And he's not talking about performance here. He's talking about a hard attitude that was tweaked and turned to righteousness. And he says, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent. Scripture talks a lot about being blameless. That's what Paul is saying. You've proved yourself to be blameless. You're right where you need to be. You're walking with the Lord. You're manifesting these qualities. When it comes to working out your salvation with fear and trembling from our passage in Philippians 2.12, we realize that it's just exactly what it says, to work it out. How do you live this changed life? That phrase is also repeated in Psalm 2.11. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. That's where we are. That's where we should be. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, maybe we needed this word today. Maybe we needed to be tweaked a little bit. Maybe a lot. Maybe we needed to be reminded what it was like before we were a believer and what it was like after we became a believer. And we needed to work out that changed heart and changed life. And we see it manifest here in 
church in Corinth. Let it be true description of our heart as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.